Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 53, uh, here with my co-host, Josh Long. Josh, how you doing? I'm doing well, Tyler. I'm doing well today, okay. this evening, this morning, this afternoon, or whenever you happen to be listening to this podcast. Uh, now, you're still relatively new to the podcasting process. Uh, I don't care when they listen to it, all right? You and I are recording this at night. Okay. Okay. Well, good night, everyone. No, we're not going to bed. Oh, okay. We're not- don't go to sleep, everyone. Well, now they have no choice. I'm just trying to get. I'm just trying to get used to this format. Uh, okay, so um, <laughs> I don't even know how to go on. Um, so yeah, uh, thanks uh, everybody for uh, hanging with us through the uh, last episode, provided you listened to it, which I have to assume you didn't, um, <laughs> because uh, as I said before, I choose movies that I I think only I have seen, but that's all right. And then I force Josh to see them too. Man, I see some bad <laughs> movies with Tyler. Yep. Um, but uh, but this week, we're going to be talking about a movie that people have been asking me to do an episode about for months. And uh, that's and I, I, I don't mean to say like people are like clamoring, being like, Tyler, what do you think? It's not quite so much that, mm. but it's a film that deals with spirituality. And so everyone's just like, Tyler, you do a podcast about film and spirituality. It only makes sense that this would happen. <laughs> and, uh, and it didn't for a long time. Because uh, every once in a while, there's a, a movie that uh, that <laughs> just has so much to it that I sort of need to organ. First off, I need to prepare myself to see it, and then once I do see it, I sort of need to organize my thoughts, and then I need to wait for it to come out on DVD. Mm. Um, because <laughs> I remember there was a time like I wanted to. I don't even remember what movie it was, but there was a movie I wanted to talk about, and. Uh, in front of the show, Jason Egan, I was like, I think I'm going to talk about this. He's like, it's not in theaters anymore. I was like, well, that's okay. He's like, but it's also not on DVD. And I said, yeah. He's like, how are people going to see this? <laughs> You're talking about a movie that people at this moment have no access to. And I was like, hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I'll hold off. So, uh, so yeah, I try to do that as well. So, um, Well, now the time has come. The time has come. Here we are. We're going to talk about uh, Terrence Malick's the Tree of Life, uh, which is which came out in early summer, late spring. I thought it was later than that. Okay. It's because uh, I remember the reason I didn't see it in the theater was because I was very, very sick. Um, mm. And I was very sick in May and June and uh, with this weird ear thing that I had that threw off my equilibrium. And this is not the movie to see if you're... E- <laughs> or maybe it's exactly the movie to see when your equilibrium is all thrown off. Yeah, so. no, actually, come to think of it, I think you may be right because that was uh, it was shortly before I was married that I remember. There it you was go. Like within a month, I think, before that. And it's the perfect months. movie to see 
before you enter into matrimony. Exactly. It, it has so much to say about marriage. Kind of does. does. <laughs> so one could make the argument it has something to say about everything that ever existed. <laughs> and I'm not even talking about concepts. I mean like iPods and uh, uh, horses. There's a whole thing about horses with iPods. Oh, my gosh. Most people fell asleep Malik, to that part of it. He's a visionary. He's a, he's a maverick. So um, No, it's Malik. Oh, I'm Malik. sorry. I, I thought it was Terrence Maverick. <laughs> Malik filmmaker Terrence Maverick. There you go. Ugh. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm not. D- didn't you like? <laughs> aren't you wistful for the days when like Josh was still like kind of when I was just a- quiet and still very new to this? Oh, or I- hey, when he wasn't on the show? Yeah, I thought you were going to say the days when I was just a glimmer in more than one lesson's eye. Ugh. <laughs> everything sounds wrong but um everything is wrong so yeah we so we're gonna be talking about tree of life which i eventually uh got to see a couple months ago uh on blu-ray and so at the very least i got to see it on blu-ray instead of oh i didn't even get to see it on blu-ray now that i think about it i was mm. going to rent it on blu-ray but it came out but i had miscalculated the dates it came out the next day <laughs> And so I wound up watching it on demand on admittedly a good TV, but either way, uh, not in no case did I see it uh, ex- how it should have been seen. Like if you're going to see it on on video, it should be on Blu-ray on a nice mm-hmm. TV with a nice sound system. But I'm, um, I'm proud because this time I have seen both movies we're seeing or uh, discussing on the big screen. I believe I have seen. Uh, yeah, the second film I've seen on a bigger screen. I saw it <laughs> in, a, in a screening room at mm-hmm. uh, at school. So, somewhere in between. But we'll get to that later. Indeed. Um, so, with Tree of Life, uh, it's, it's a very hard film to describe. Uh, if you're listening to this, I assume you've seen it, and you know that it's hard to describe. Mm-hmm. Um, and the neat thing about having a co-host is at any moment I can throw to him and say, Josh, how would you describe this movie? Well, I would, I would pick three words, and then I would forget all of those words, which is... What I'm pretending that I did because I don't have three words for this movie. Oh. Um, I'll, I'll I'll go through a little bit, sort of what it's about for anyone who uh, who hasn't seen it and is listening, or saw it and completely forgot, or uh, something like that. And also, actually, a quick side note: it's kind of interesting when talking about the movie, and if you ask someone to describe it, the thing that they choose first as this is how best to describe the movie like that i feel like that tells you a lot about not necessarily about that person but about how they took the film um because i mean i guess we could describe the plot but it's not real it's a movie that is not at all about plot Mm -hmm. and slightly about character you Mm -hmm. know so and which is why for someone like myself who those are usually the terms i think in um that's it's hard for me to get it because part of me could be like, well, it's, it's like, what the film, what's the film about? Well, it's, it's about everything <laughs> and nothing. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'm sure the person would stop listening at that point. But yes. So, uh, without your three word crutch, uh, what, what would you say it is about? Yeah. Well, we we are being a little bit glib about the, uh, sort of confusing or maybe vague nature of the movie, but, uh, I, don't don't let that throw you off. We both did well. I can at least speak for myself. I I loved the film, and I mm-hmm. thought that the fact that it is a little outside of what you normally expect from a film made it exciting to me. I, I like to see movies where um, 
that are experimental to some kind of to some degree. Uh, maybe not you know full Andy Warhol experimental, but um, something that a film that either structures itself in a way that you might not expect or has a, a topic that you might not expect or, or something like that. And so that this, this film was very like fresh and exciting in that way. And so as, as Tyler already mentioned, um, it's not so much based on plot. Uh, we're very used to in this culture. We're used to films that are purely plot based. I think that's more American culture, even than it is just Western culture. But, uh, I, w- I think I would say this is a film that is more theme based and possibly character based as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a thin plot, which I'll, I'll sort of go through there. There's uh, the movie follows a family in small town, rural Texas during the sixties. And uh, it's a, a mother and father and three boys. And early on in the film, we learn that one of the boys has been killed in the war. We assume in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, or do you think it could be Korea? Could it be that far back? I'm, uh, I'm not sure. It probably wouldn't be because when we see Sean Penn grow right. up, he's he's too young to have fought in Korea. Right. Um. So. Uh, so yeah. So it, it's a family, and the one of the one of the boys has has been killed in war, but. This happens early on in the movie where we see, where we see the family grieving this loss, but then for the rest of the movie we're seeing the family before that happened, years right. before that happened. Almost the entire movie we are seeing this family while the boys are uh, early teen. I'd say the the youngest boys maybe fifteen or sorry oldest. Excuse me, oldest is probably fifteen. Oldest is probably, is probably eight. Yeah. seven or eight um so we're we're really just sort of following these these kids around and and we're uh seeing some first experiences with them mm-hmm. um it, it focuses very much on the the oldest boy jack mm-hmm. um and we, we see a lot of uh, his experiences just living in that area and then we see a lot with his a uh, lot about his connection with his father and his mother and uh, both of his brothers and some people might describe it as a as a slice of life thing. I can see that, but I think it's that's not the point. There's a lot more to it than that. And and it's even because some have described it as a coming of age mm-hmm. sort of thing, and it is that, but more. Yeah. Um, because it's really just yes, it focuses primarily on uh, on the oldest kid who. We said fifteen. I think it might. I think he might be a little closer to thirteen because he does. He's at the age where he does discover uh, sexuality. Yeah. And at fifteen, I think you've got it. Yeah. Um. And so I think probably probably twelve or thirteen is where he is. But uh, yeah, that might be about right. But yeah, and so in that sense, it is sort of a coming of age thing. But it's also just the kid experiencing life and recognizing different aspects of life, including impulses inside himself and i don't merely mean sexual impulses mm-hmm. um that he likes or doesn't like um including the you know and discovering like the capacity for cruelty in himself like yeah. he he gets along with his brothers and then one day he decides he's not he's going to be mean to one of his brothers in, in mm-hmm. one specific way and so and you see his relationship to his mother his relationship to his father and 
and how that changes over the course of the film. But it's, it really is just, I guess, slice of life, but somehow that seems too quaint uh, a term for it. Yeah, because normally the the things that I would describe as a slice of life movie are, are they're usually just character based. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's almost as if you're just, you're just following someone, you're, you're seeing what their life is like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you said, there is a lot more to this. We're seeing not, not only are we seeing this kid learn so many things about uh, what it means to be a human and sort of the dilemma that he's in. Um, we'll go into this a little bit more later, but he, he sort of is realizing that he's in this dilemma where he's torn between grace and, and um, nature, I think yeah. is what they say. Yeah. yeah. Nature and grace nature by, by which they, they seem to mean a certain, harshness mm-hmm. and uh well i mean unforgiveness or lack of forgiveness and just that sort of thing yeah and so, so he's kind of going on on this journey where he's finding himself go back and forth between these two uh these two poles and um uh, at the same time <laughs> should we discuss the we can discuss the sequence that is is confusing, most confusing for most people, if you'd like. <laughs> uh, let's let's stick with the story, uh, well, if you want to call it that. Um, okay. Let, well, we'll stick with the character, and then we'll move on to uh, to the other things. Sure, um, sure. Because uh, both of those pulls, uh, in his eyes, at first, uh, which is say I'd say the first half of the film, are represented by his two parents. Mm-hmm. Nature seems to be represented by his father, both. By in the sense that like his dad is, you know, strict stronger, strict, and also in just the philosophies that his father spouts. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about wanting to make his boys stronger and more ready for the world, and the world is a harsh place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mother play is is you know first off she's softer, she's a bit more forgiving, and she's just you know just gentler, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, so the kid definitely favors the mother over the father. Um, and, uh, and over the course of the film, we, and we sort of take our cues from him and we like her more than the father. Father is played by uh, Brad Pitt and the mother by Jessica Chastain. Mm-hmm. And so we, we kind of don't like, uh, Brad Pitt's character. And, but over the course of the film, we come to know more about him, that mm-hmm. he's not merely a bad guy. He yeah. has, he has the the capacity for love and forgiveness and sorrow in him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's, again, this is n- in no way a plot based film or, but there is an arc mm-hmm. and, uh, and from the point of view of Jack, uh, specifically young Jack, we do see a lot of, we do see various awakenings in, in him and, a, and a maturity and an awareness. And one of the things that I think everyone can relate to uh, as you get older is, you know, when you're young, you tend to see things in very simple ways, which is mom, good, dad, bad, mm-hmm. because dad frightens me and mom makes me feel good. And then as he gets older, he starts to hear more of what, where his dad is coming from and maybe how he turned out this way and, and starts to, I, I don't know, cut him a bit more slack and see him more as just a, 
just a person rather than this one thing, this negative thing. And, um, and so it's just some, so I guess it's, it is a film about, about, well, many things, but getting older, getting more mature. And I'd say becoming more aware of your surroundings. Um, and in the midst of all of this, and we'll transition into some of the other stuff that we're, we're going to talk about. Um, in the midst of all of this, we do, as is pretty par for the course with Malik films, uh, we do hear a lot of voiceover, and it seems to be inner monologue, primarily mm-hmm. of primarily Jack. Uh, and he often seems to be, he'll be talking like to his mother or his father, mm-hmm. and it's stuff that he has never said, and probably will never say, but kind of wishes that he could. But we also... He is also talking to God. Yeah, we get a sense that he is speaking to, e- even if he doesn't realize it's God. Right. Um, he he is speaking to whatever whatever is God in his mind. This mm-hmm. higher power that he sees as as above himself and, and controlling all things, because right. he he expresses frustration about his uh, about his his nature and about. Mm-hmm the and, and about grace he, he expresses like frustration about those two things and how he, he has difficulty reconciling them in his mind and uh, he, he expresses frustration about just who he is and um what's wrong with him in in yeah. some sequences and uh it's it's amazing to me i think one, it's one of the triumphs of the film that he speaks in narration that seems natural for for a child. It doesn't seem uh, overly overly flowery or heightened. It seems natural, and yet it conveys uh, it conveys so much depth. And mm-hmm. part of that is because of the way that it's juxtaposed with the images and and uh, with the the caliber of acting. Um, but just to see something that's so simple and realistic and can say so much at the same time. Yeah. And, and there's also kind of a universalism to the things that he is thinking and, and praying. Right. Um, because how many of us, I'm sure when we hear some of the things, maybe not all of them, cause everyone's a little different, but, um, when we hear some of the things that he is thinking and praying, we think, Oh, I've, I've thought that not even necessarily when I was a kid, but I've I've thought that I've asked God, asked God that yeah um, and yeah and and so the film is very con- is very uh, concerned and and uh, preoccupied with um, with our relationship to God it, because it's it's such an interesting approach of where you they could have just told a very straightforward story of this family and a kid who as i as i mentioned earlier just thought of his his dad this way his mom this way and as he gets older he realizes you know what we're none of us perfect that's that's what the story could have been mm-hmm. but by incorporating him questioning the universe and him questioning the way things are and it goes to what i was saying earlier just be just a general awareness of things more than himself mm-hmm. and more than his mom and dad and the wor- even the world he lives in yeah. whatever that might be um that sort of informs other aspects of the film and it is these other aspects that are both intriguing and to some uh infuriating mm-hmm. 
and uh, because w- the one thing that people often say is, uh, and, and I, I'll be a little uh, a little glib here to uh, to borrow uh, something that Josh was uh, mentioning earlier, is that uh, in the movie that we've described, you would probably not assume there would be dinosaurs in it. <laughs> okay, now. The joke here is that it's not like uh, Jurassic Park suddenly bursts out and these all these characters are uh, disemboweled by velociraptors and you know Brad Pitt gets spit in the face and then he's blind. Uh, you know it's not that. Uh, it's that you know we do get f- flashbacks upon flashbacks and it goes back and forth in time. And then we get, I'm going to say, the ultimate flashback, <laughs> which is really the beginning of the world. Mm-hmm. And before there are people and we see just, you know, oceans and we see volcanoes, we see, you know, the heavens, we see the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we see it. They show all of this in sort of the creation process. Right. Uh, we see, you know, if you go by the the Genesis account and in, in the order that things happened, you see mm-hmm. light and darkness. You go yeah. on to like water and, uh, you know, like uh, what am I trying to say? The water and the air. I don't know yeah. exactly. Sky. I what's guess. the best to say? Yeah. The second one. Um, but then you, you go into the cosmos, and then finally down onto you know Earth. We see. We see plant life, we see water mm-hmm. and animal life kind of growing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it's clear that that what this is trying to show us is God's creation of the world. I, right. I feel like it's hard to take that another way. Well, it. I mean, you could. It'd be very easy to look at that section on its own and say, "Well, it's just about the world." coming into existence and then then the process of evolution uh, taking place. If you looked at it context-free, you would see it, I think you could look at it like that. Yeah. But it's not context-free. We are seeing it in the context of pe- of people asking God things. Mm-hmm. And there's a, you know, there's a Bible verse at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, of of the whole of the whole affair from Job. Um and I don't remember it specifically, but I think it's part of this little uh, <laughs> cluster here. Uh, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Um, that's something that God asks to Job. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, I think it's that one. I meant to look it up and I forgot. Sorry, everybody. That's uh, that's my fault. But it was something like that. And and so and and it comes on the heels of in, in the film. It comes on the heels of the uh, the mother character questioning God after. Right. Presumably after her son has, has, after she found out that her son has died. Right. So it's, it's interesting in that context as well, because that's very similar to God speaking back to Job after mm-hmm. Job is, is, uh, crying out to God after all of the bad things that have happened to him. Mm-hmm. That, that's, I'm sure I could think of a more eloquent, eloquent way to say that it sounds kind of belittling to say all that bad stuff that happened to Job. I mean, but, it's not uh, good stuff. Well, <laughs> that's true, but, um, <laughs> But anyway, in, in a similar way, this character is crying out because of uh, these this terrible tragedy. Right. And the film, in a way, shows us God's answer by right. showing who he is. And, and maybe by 
by showing us these images and showing us the the majesty of creation mm-hmm. it is almost with images asking the question where were you when i laid the foundations of the earth and i will actually read this now um this is job 38 verses 4 through 11 i could read all of 38 by the way but i'm not going to i'm just uh i decided to stop somewhere that, so I, that's your homework viewers yeah you Look into this yourself. I'm not going to do everything for you. Uh, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels uh, angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness... When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. So I just wanted to pick that partially because of the imagery. Mm -hmm. It is the imagery of a very, really a very violent earth Mm -hmm. uh, coming into creation and God having the power to say, this is where you're harnessing that and shaping that yeah and that's really what we get in that sequence which by the way uh again if you're listening to this you've probably you've probably seen the film but either way that's an extended sequence you really are not sure where it's going to end yeah it could be like after minute number 10 you're you're thinking is there going to be an hour of this and i don't mean to say that in a negative way Mm -hmm. um but after minute 10, when you realize this isn't going to just be a, a little drop in the bucket thing, and then it's back to the quote unquote story, uh, for me, I, I just sort of let myself go and stopped asking yeah. and just started just drinking in the beauty of the images that I was seeing. Which I think is the filmmaker's intention and I think mm-hmm. will reward the viewer if you mm-hmm. if you see it in that way. If if you're sitting and you're waiting like when are we going to get back to the story then right. you're not able to enjoy this part of it and to attach this part of the movie to the rest of it. It's in there for a very good reason and a very important reason. So I think uh, the filmmaker's intention is for us to take that in and apply that to the rest of the film and mm-hmm. not you know, wait to get back to the other storyline. And so, uh, so I'll, I'll, we'll go to, um, so, and yes, I mentioned dinosaurs in this sequence. We do see dinosaurs very, uh, you know, fairly briefly, uh, for all the, for all that people talk about dinosaurs <laughs> in the movie, it's not a big part of the, there's film. not a lot of them, although one of them does spit on Dennis Nedry. So there's that. Yeah. Why is he in there? I don't know. I mean, you know, kudos to Wayne Knight for uh, for taking an unbilled cameo, but uh, <laughs> and that speaks to you know human greed even back then. There you go. He still wanted to get the embryos. That's true. But um, uh, that was this. an unfortunate uh, tangent. None of this is true. And if if you're if you're thinking that it was, we we apologize sorry, for the everybody. sarcasm. But um, it's in the director's cut. Yes, yeah, that but, that um, is true. So, so yeah, like in the verses I just read, it's all about, it is God's answer to Job's pleading cry. And I apologize. I read it in something of a snarky way. Um, but you know, to go back to, I, I think, uh, J- uh, Jason Eakin and I, we talked, when we talked about a serious man, I think we talked about this, this, this idea that we, we often feel we, 
people often feel entitled uh, to answers, and we actually maybe approach God with something of a snarky attitude. Not to imply it's wrong to ask God why, and of course, uh, in context of the film, Jessica Chastain's character has lost a son. Mm-hmm. Noth- absolutely nothing wrong with her asking why and her, you know, being not even mad at God, but just being so desperate and just wanting an answer, wanting something. There's nothing wrong with that at all. No. But, um, but yeah, God's answer is, I am God. You may not understand my answer, but there is one. Mm-hmm. Because if I can harness this, not even harness, if I can create it and limit it, mm-hmm. then I, I surely had a reason for letting this happen, and I know it hurts. Mm. And then, you know, we go on from there. I'm, I'm talking a little bit about the, uh, the, the overall theme. But, but I do want to talk about that, se- that sequence because that is – because from there on, uh, when it goes back to the O'Brien family uh, – even though it still kind of it still has that you know the the voiceover and and it and it doesn't have a traditional uh, narrative structure it it does become a bit more traditional mm-hmm. everything before uh the the creation sequence uh has a dreamlike quality where we see Sean Penn as the adult jack and then we see the younger jack we're not even really sure where we are in time. Yeah, there. I think we're, we may, it's a little bit before we're entirely sure of the connection between those two. Right. And so, and we see Jessica Chastain and Brad Pitt in kind of in old age makeup. So mm-hmm. we're not sure when that is. We're not sure. And so, so it's this very, I don't know, just ambiguous thing for about 15 to 20 minutes maybe even a half hour Mm. before the creation sequence starts and then after that everything is a bit more narrative and a bit more easy to comprehend and then towards the end of the film it goes sort of back into that uh, ambiguous thing but um, so the fact that the creation sequence is an extended sequence and marks a, a dividing point in the film because everything before it is flowing and you don't really know what's going on uh, and everything after that, almost everything after that makes a bit more sense, means that this is sort of the the cornerstone of the film. Um, and so I do want to talk about that a little bit uh, in a variety of ways, by the way. Um, first off, uh, we sort of talked about our uh, responses to it already but once i was and i knew i knew it was there going into the film and so my attitude towards it was in no way negative i knew it i expected it i had seen malik before i knew about his love of nature and wanting to photograph that Mm -hmm. and so but i didn't know how long it was going to be and and so even though I was enjoying it, part of me was still trying to figure out how much he was going to commit to it with a weird, with the weird attitude of, I, I wanted him to commit a lot of time to it. And Mm -hmm. once I realized that he was going to do that, I was like, all right, good for you, Terrence Malick. You're no compromises here. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so eventually it's just such a, such a beautiful breathtaking sequence i i do wish that i had seen it in in the theater and with the uh, oscar nominations coming out soon and and people say that it uh, probably will be nominated for various oscars it would be neat if it was re-released in some theaters in los angeles which it could be yeah and if that's the case i may i may 
pay the money to go see it because that's the way to see it i think it, it would be worth it if there's anyone listening who has the opportunity to see it in uh in in the theaters and hasn't yet i, I would highly recommend it and it's just so it's just so beautiful and in so many ways for me who for those that listen listen to battleship pretension and even some who listen to this um i do tend to think in terms of story dialogue character i'm not locked into it completely but i do tend to the movies i I respond to the most tend to have that uh or focus on that a lot um but in watching this i was able to lose myself and just remember like this is what film can do yeah and it's what film as opposed to really any other artistic medium can do i mean absolutely as wonderful as a as a book can be in how it is written it can be it can uh, evoke amazing imagery and that's that's wonderful there's nothing wrong with that and you get to use your imagination you can get swept up in it uh music can have such an emotional impact on you but the fact that film which ostensibly you're supposed to be seeing in the theater can just envelop you in these images and that terrence malick more than most other filmmakers has an appreciation a respect and a love for what film can do in that respect uh, I don't know. It, it makes I, I've respected him as a filmmaker for a long time, and in that sequence, once I let myself go, I just got swept away in watching it. And even though I was in a room, a room with like six or seven other people, uh, I still I got choked up. I got like kind of you know teary eyed yeah. because it was just so beautiful. And then in the context of the film, the idea that that there was and is uh, a force, a benevolent force behind all of this, yeah. that's usually that right around there is when I got I got choked up a little bit. And it was just so it was just such a wonderful sequence. Yeah. Uh, I've been talking for a while. Uh, your response. <laughs> no, I, I felt the same way. And I feel like you mentioned a little bit. I think you may have already used the word majesty to describe mm. the majesty of god uh, in this sequence maybe you did maybe, maybe you didn't maybe it was just in my mind i don't mm. remember but uh I, that's one of the things that i think is so amazing about this sequence is that it does i think i was about to say fully but i think nothing can fully uh describe to us the majesty of god except mm. god himself but um the it, it there is a great depth in its its depiction of the majesty of God, both in its uh, violence and its control and the context uh, in which it's placed in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know, not, not only is it, is it an amazing common like juxtaposition of image, sound uh, story theme and, and everything that film has to offer. Um, it, uh, it sets a. I, th- I think I'm going to talk a little bit about the, just the functionality of it. In that, because it's placed in this early in the film, and because there is no narrative to follow during the sequence of the film, and it's it's a long sequence, it forces you as the viewer to watch this movie differently. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just watching it to see what happens, if you sit for 20 minutes. And I'm not exactly sure how long the sequence is, but I think that's a that's maybe twenty a fair, or twenty five. I yeah, think yeah, that's a fair estimation. Um, 
if you sit for that long and nothing happens, quote unquote, story wise, you have to reassess the way that you're looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, some people don't, and some people shut down and no. stop paying attention to the movie. Um, but if you if you take that opportunity to start looking at the movie in a different way, it informs the rest of the movie because the rest of the movie is, uh, you know, is kind of free form doesn't doesn't follow a very specific narrative mm-hmm. um but you're not at that point you're not expecting it to so much and that's right. one of the reasons that i as a viewer i didn't care at all that it was long some people have said that the, the it was a problem for them that the movie was long mm-hmm. and i think after that point I, the way you've been talking about it it's kind of made me think i, I think it's because of that montage the quote-unquote creation montage um after that, I'm. I, I don't care how long the movie is. You know, I'm. I'm watching whatever uh, images and whatever idea is put together with all these images for for as long as it were to go. Mm-hmm. And so we'll we'll be getting to some of the themes uh, in a moment, um, because I do want to talk about some other things first. So the film is in my view as as a christian and that's when you watch this movie i mean i'm sure if you are an atheist an agnostic or really any other religion i mean i'm this is a film you watch through your own filter i feel like you have no choice i don't mm. think there is such a thing as watching this film objectively yeah one could say there's you don't watch any film objectively but one like this you will have bias. Christians watch it and they see it a certain, you know, we see you and I watch it. And immediately I think in terms of, okay, this film believes there's a God believes that he's very powerful and that he's somewhat interested, but maybe even maybe seems a little detached mm-hmm. from humanity. You know, like that's, that's how I think. Cause those are the terms in which I think in mm-hmm. my everyday life, I think the less obvious a film is, the more you have to bring in that, uh, exactly. that stuff, your worldview into it. Um, because people say the same things about a lot of, uh, well, a lot of Kubrick's films, among other things. Um, um, and, and that, to me, is invigorating because it means that you could have ten people in a room, all of them different religious philosophies, political philosophies, different genders, different races, and everyone will have, a, I think, a completely different interpretation of the film. And that's very exciting. And you don't run across that very often because films are seldom willing to be that ambiguous. And ambiguous sounds almost too negative and as does words like vague, Hmm. but it's just, it just doesn't speak in, in the most concrete of terms. Right. And it's for that reason that I think a lot of fellow Christians, not all of them, but a lot of fellow Christians have a problem with it. Hmm. I believe that this is a film about God, as do you, and the way in which he relates to humanity and the way in which humanity relates to him. There's a difference between those two, of course. Yeah. Um, Now, I watched the film with a group of uh, fellow Christians, and afterwards they had some problems with the film. And they are free to do so, by the way. Um, I'm not saying that... I'm right and they're wrong because with a film like this, it's hard, you know, it's hard to say, well, obviously I'm right. Just look at this completely unusual sequence. Um, but the, regardless of what your, 
what your personal beliefs are to to approach this film wanting it to be this other thing and then getting upset when it isn't um and you could say this about any any movie but a movie like this where christians and non-christians alike say you've got to see it and everyone sees it and people i don't know what they go in expecting but they certainly aren't expecting this and they are immediately disappointed and I don't give myself a lot of credit in a lot of other areas, but I, I, at this point in my life, I'm getting pretty good at being able to at least make the effort to go where the director wants me to go instead of in, in, insist that he w- meet me where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so yeah, there's, there's a number of people. I mean, if you read any kind of message board talking about this film and people will say it's pretentious, they'll say it's, They'll say it's any number of negative things. I'll artsy fartsy. They'll say that. Uh, <laughs> some, uh, it's interesting to see how the the views on the film range from wildly uh, from wild praise to to wild derision. Yeah, and I have to assume there's not much in the middle, right? <laughs> I don't, but I, I do just, feel like it's a hard film to go out of and be like, eh, "It was okay." Yeah, sure. <laughs> I go three stars, um, but. Uh, and and so this is the film that I think will put you to the test but it's it's not a bad film to start the conversation uh about how to approach movies mm. um because if you go in wanting it to be a certain structure and it's not you can't fault the film you can't necessarily fault yourself for your expectations either provided of course you re- you are willing to change your expectations once you see what the film is. Hmm. But then also, and this is, this is how I want to talk about it from a, from a Christian standpoint. It's a film that explores spirituality. It's a film that explores God and our relationship to him. And a lot of, a lot of fellow Christians seem very frustrated that it did not explore it as quote unquote, completely as they would have liked. Mm-hmm. Um, the film, to my knowledge, does not say the word Jesus, uh, doesn't say the word Christ, uh, ever in the film. It's 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 never said. It's 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 about God. Um, and so you run across this in certain Christian circles, and I'm sure I've been guilty of it myself at times. Um, where if something is going to talk about God, then why doesn't it talk about Jesus? And this is a film that talks about grace. Why do they not talk about Jesus? And that is a that is to to them a flaw, and they spend so much time focusing on what the film doesn't talk about mm-hmm. that they completely miss what it is talking about. Yeah. I think it's important to note that... Um, a film that that speaks about God or or Christianity should not be expected to tell the full gospel message to tell everything that there is about Christianity. We have a resource for that already in mm-hmm. the Bible um, if if there's ever anyone who wants to know 
what Christianity is and the full story of Christianity, it's it's in the Bible. It's mm. there for us, and God's given it for us in that way. And so I think that it's incorrect of us to assume that a work of art that deals with God is responsible to give the full message of of Christianity. There are so many elements of God to be examined and uh, you could you could have a 10-hour movie that explores one minute element of God and I think this this film goes into a lot of things about who God is and it it doesn't specifically uh it doesn't specifically address Jesus and and the gospel but I think there's so much good said about the nature of God in it mm-hmm. that I, I think it's short-sighted to see it as a flaw that it doesn't go into that it doesn't go into the the gospel. And also, I think it's it's an important film for Christians to see, especially modern Christians, because. And I, I apologize if this is going to sound like I'm admonishing uh, uh, fellow Christians. I frequently am, but um, in this case. I remember a, a, a sermon that my pastor back in Missouri gave, which is respecting God and fearing God, and the word fear not necessarily meaning what it, you know, meaning now what it meant in the Bible, um, but not incredibly far off, and that so often in, you know, modern worship songs and in modern sermons, um, God has become, through Jesus, our buddy. Not even friend. Buddy. <laughs> and that, like, he's, I mean, he's like, one could say he's our homeboy. He's gone from being the all-powerful creator of the universe to the guy that you can get a car battery from. Exactly. <laughs> and, like, yeah, and just this idea, I mean, you hear stuff like, at the moment I'm talking about Jesus, but, like, Jesus is my co-pilot. And as I said a moment ago, Jesus is my homeboy. Like, just, like, really devaluing Jesus and by extension devaluing God Um, to many people and to many Christians, the word God, and we're saying God a lot in this conversation. And when I say the word God, I don't say it with really any reverence Mm. just as I'm talking about it. But I mean, what are we really talking about when we're talking about God? That, that is not often emphasized. Mm. And this is a film that I think wants us to, un- like, at, our, at, at his core, what is God? Mm. He is love, yes. He is also power. Mm. By his very nature, he is power. Mm. A power that at times can seem frightening and should yeah. seem frightening, yeah, intimidating. It, that every, every character in the Bible, every person in the Bible that is confronted with God is frightened every person that's even confronted with angels who are so much lesser than god are mm-hmm. frightened and that that should give us a clue to the the power that's behind god the power that is in god and i'm not saying that i, I don't mean to sound all fire and brimstoney like you should be you know that we're all you know sinners in the hands of an angry god and that he's <laughs> just you know holding us like a spider over a fire i'm referencing something here um the uh <coughs> I don't mean to sound in a, sound like that. 
because for me, and I guess we're sort of getting into the theme a little bit, but I, I don't want to go too far in this direction. I want to I want to head head there and then come back a little bit. Um, the thing that gets me is I think modern Christians tend to downplay the majesty, the weight, the power of God because they want him to seem more personal and more loving because you can't be powerful and be loving Mm. because the more loving you are, the more giving you are of yourself and you don't have any power if you're giving. And, Mm. but to, but to me and partially as a result of this film, that's why it's so important that it, that it spends so long on this section showing the, volatility and I mm. that sounds maybe a little too unstable but the volatility of God's creation and what he has the power to do mm. he has the, I mean what are we in compare in comparison to say an erupting volcano <laughs> not much <laughs> I saw volcano the coast is toast that's not the that's not the <laughs> subtitle that's the tagline but uh, I saw John Carroll Lynch I think melt in lava you know like it's and that's just one thing. And the mm-hmm. idea that God has created it is mm-hmm. is astounding. He is in control of those things. Like not he he created them and is control of them. And and like you're saying, that's something that it is easy for us to forget. Yeah. And by the film even he- like heading in that direction and then spending so much time on it and spending so much time just spending so much time and energy showing it to to me like i said the idea that behind all of this is a benevolent being is that's what got me and i realized it's not merely that god did all this but that he did all this and still cares about me hmm. no. and not in a school marmy kind of way either hmm. you know i mean there's you know, there's rules, one could say commandments and that sort of thing. But those are out of those come out of love and wanting us to do the right thing by each other, by ourselves and by him, knowing full well that our lives will be I think a little easier and less complicated if we actually hold to those. But um but the like thing i'm sorry to refer to god as a thing but i'll say i'll say force a force this big this powerful it doesn't need to commune with us mm-hmm. it doesn't need to sacrifice itself for us yeah but the fact that it does is astounding and yeah. wonderful yeah like like with many things god is a paradox that doesn't make that that can't make sense to us because it doesn't make sense to us that something like you were sort of starting to say earlier something so powerful would be so giving of himself Mm -hmm. um that 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 isn't that doesn't work in our heads there are so many things about god's nature that we are incapable of understanding that like when we try to put it in some kind of context uh in our world it it we, we can't right it's it's sort of like um the one thing that's always struck me as interesting is is if you've ever heard anyone try to explain the concept of eternity um 
And I don't understand why people do, because it's something that is impossible, I think, for the human mind to, to comprehend. But people always still uh, describe it in, in terms of time. Like, I think I yeah. remember when I was a kid, and I feel like maybe I've told the show on the, this on the show, the story on the show before, so my apologies if I have, but I remember someone describing it as like, imagine if there was a piece of concrete that was as big as the United States and a bird was pecking it off, pecking it apart little by little. Eternity is even longer than the amount of time it would take that bird to peck through that piece of concrete. And it's like, you're... So it's still, so it's just a bigger piece of concrete is what you're saying? (laughs) It's still describing eternity in in uh in terms of time yeah and eternity exists outside of time and without time which doesn't make sense to us so any way that we can try to explain it or try to understand it won't work because it's not something that exists in nature that exists in our world and that's the way god is there are so many things about god's nature that do not exist in our world and don't make sense to us within the context of our created world and that's one of the other things that i like about the film is that without without totally saying it but if you already think if you already think about this when it when it comes to god that he is outside of time and thus everything is present Mm. um if you think about that um you realize that the film has to take place in our in time. Yeah. But he but Malik does everything he can through jumbling up the timeline a little bit and to show the origin of the of the universe and the O'Brien family. Yeah. And the like, origin of the universe in the middle of the story of the O'Brien family. Right, because it's all happening at once. Mm-hmm. And that God is okay. God is right now all right. God is right now loving you and creating the universe. Does that make any sense at all? No, it doesn't, but it's probably right. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's... Yeah. That, that sounds really... When I start to go in that direction, it's like, I'm immediately out of my depth. Yeah, we're, we're kind of getting, getting yeah, out yeah. of our depth. Um, in fact, if you'd ever like to read some things about the way that God looks at time that will blow your mind. Uh, Augustine's confession, St. Augustine's confessions, like the last, I, I don't know how long, but there, I don't know if it's the last chapter or if it's several chapters. Uh, the St. Augustine who wrote this in the, I believe the 1200s, I think maybe before that is, is writing about what it would have to mean for God to be outside of time. And it's things that I had never even thought of and, and are so much more, <laughs> confusing and uh, anyone's out of their depth in in uh, looking into that the the really simplified way i i heard of using it of of describing it was imagine imagine you're an ant walking on a table you and you're just walking across it the place you've already walked is your past where you're headed is your future where you are is your present now imagine that you're a person watching that ant on the table. It's all there now. You know what I mean? Like you mm-hmm. can see you can see from the ant's point of view where past, present, and future is, but you're seeing the whole table. There is no now, then, or soon to be. Like it's all now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very simplified way of looking <laughs> at it. But um, yeah. well, all this sort of to say that, like, I, I'm afraid we're getting <laughs> a little <laughs> into into more than we need to talk about talking about the way 
eternity and God being outside of time and all that. But mm. that does speak to the film a little bit in the way that, like you mentioned, the way that uh, the way that the film sees this family and also creation mm. in it sort of speaks to the way that God sees us. And uh, that's one of the beautiful things about it is that it it shows us that God is both concerned with the creation of the world and something that is huge and something that is dangerous and more complex than you can ever imagine. But and very he, important. And <laughs> very important, yes. Um, but at the same time, he is as concerned with minute details of this family's life. And the... Terrence Malick uses his camera in this movie to focus on tiny things mm-hmm. for sometimes for extended periods. Just, just uh, like when, when I think when we see Jack, when it's, when he's first born, mm-hmm. um, there are extended sequences where we're just kind of looking at features of him a, as a baby or just him, him as a baby, just being there. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that's to suggest that God is as concerned with this. God is as concerned with this baby's foot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, this one part of this one baby from this one family during this one time on this one planet is as important as the creation of everything, including this planet. And that's the thing that I think some people miss have missed in seeing the film. I know I've heard some people, uh, speak about the film and say that it doesn't that it, it it seems as if god is distant in the film and i i don't know i i couldn't disagree more i i think it it works hard to establish both that god is beyond uh everything that the, everything in the world and everything that is in this family but he is still invested in it in mm. in the smallest of ways uh sorry I made that sound incorrect. Invested in even the smallest details. That's what I meant. And I guess I could understand why someone would think God seems distant because the characters think he is distant. But there is a difference. Um, we and and because we are allowed to hear the characters' inner monologue, um, one could say that we're supposed to see the film through their point of view, and we do to a certain extent. And, and in doing so, we see it through our point of view as people. But the fa- and, and it goes back to <coughs> why the structure of the film is so important. Uh, you know, jumbled timelines, seeing creation, and then focusing in on tiny details. The camera, I- the camera is basically God, I think, at that point. And, so, and if God is interested in these people, just as we, to repeat what we said, just as interested in these people as he is in the creation of the world, then that is not a distant God. That is not a God who just, you know, wound up the clock and let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, but so often we and these characters are, you know, pleading for God to answer our question in a way that we can comprehend mm-hmm. and he doesn't seem to be. So it seems as though he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and so I wanted to, um, I'll transition into the companion film and then we will, uh, further explore this theme and then we'll, we'll wrap up. This episode's going to be, oh, no, still going to be pretty long. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, oh, I thought we were doing real well for a while there. And so, um, the companion film, so this, this movie is, 
if nothing else, ambitious. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're speaking now about the companion film or about... I'm Tree talking of about Life Tree of Life okay. at the moment. Uh, but the, compa- the companion film, also pretty ambitious. I couldn't really think of something else. Uh, it's, it's, it's too obvious a comparison. Not the le- uh, for a number of reasons, not the least of which they have the same super... Uh, uh, super? Whatever. The same uh, visual effects guy, which is Douglas Trumbull. Oh, um, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Ter- so the companion film is 2001 A Space Odyssey, which came out in 1968 and was directed by Stanley Kubrick. And uh, Terrence Malick was not pleased with a lot of the visual effects artists that he saw. Um, uh, you know, he saw like demos from. And so he sought out Douglas Trumbull, who did the special effects for 2001 and had not made a fi- had not worked on at, with special effects on a film since Blade Runner. Wow! And so Terrence Malick brought him in for this, and I think it shows. I think it's uh, they're clearly not merely visual effects. There's a lot going on there, and it feels very real, very tangible. Um, but yeah, so so that's that's one of the many links between this and 2001: A Space Odyssey. Hmm. Uh, it's a uh, I'm sure many of you have seen it uh, as well. It's based on a story called The Sentinel by Arthur C. Clarke. Um, it's a film divided up into, I'd say, three parts. Three or four? I feel like there's four, but I, it might I think depend there might on be who you well. ask. I guess, yeah, I guess when you think about it, because there's, the, there's the, the apes, you know, Dawn of Man, that mm-hmm. whole thing. Uh, and then there is the mining on the moon or another planet, I don't recall. Right. And then there's Dave and his experience with Hal. And then there's the trippy sequence at the end, which is long. Uh, <laughs> which enough, actually, enough to qualify as another part. I, I, I did think of, uh, I remember that that's another comparison uh, to this, uh, between the two films, is that 2001 also features a long sequence that seems yeah. to not move the narrative forwards. Yeah. But I and I I'm I'm not necessarily a big fan of 2001. I understand why it's a wonderful movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I as I said earlier, um, I, I tend to need a character to latch on to. Uh, otherwise, I or I need to feel that the film has some investment in its characters, uh, mm-hmm. whoever they may be. Um, Otherwise, I feel like the film is a bit cold and there's nothing I can really latch on to. And that's how I feel with 2001 <coughs> uh, Tree of Life. It is not at all. It's not at all a cold film. I think it's very invested in its characters. Mm-hmm. Even even if the film at times seems distant from them, I think they're very fully realized characters, but it's just not a character film. 2001 you're not really that invested with anybody. The character you, that is the most indelible <laughs> is a computer named Hal. And so, and that is, that in itself is worth noting. And it speaks to, you know, the, the character with the most personality is a piece of technology mm-hmm. and, uh, might speak to Kubrick's uh, view of where humanity is headed. And, uh, and in that sense, I think it fits in well with uh, Blade Runner, where the people who are the most human are the ones that aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Tree of Life, I always found it to be uh, kind of a cold film. But I'm sorry, you said Tree of Life. I think you did. Meant. I say Tree of Life. Yeah. I'm sorry. 2001, uh, I found to be a, a cold film, and as such, I don't often enjoy it. But it is a masterpiece. 
and beautiful to look at and just nice and patient as Kubrick <laughs> so often is. And, um, and I don't, I, I mean, I guess we could talk a little bit about the film artistic artistically, but the problem with talking about a film that is this well known, um, is that I really don't feel like I could bring anything new to the yeah, conversation, really right? Cover any new ground, but we can say yeah. at least that the, the another comparison between these two films is a, I think an impeccable visual style, mm-hmm. even though they, they both differently, they both have their own different and unique styles. Right. There is a, there is a heavy, a heavy focus on the visuals and visuals in both are stunning mm-hmm. in, in, in their own way. And I mean, just, and, and the type of story it is telling is, is pretty similar because, um, while 2001 does proceed in chronological order it doesn't jump around Mm -hmm. um there are large shifts in in the timeline um and it starts with not necessarily a creation story but not long after that and you Mm -hmm. see um not necessarily prehistoric times i guess that's what you'd call it right like you don't see dinosaurs but you see like early man uh which is to say apes Hmm. who are just you know walking around and getting in fights and looking for food and all that. And then what happens is this giant black rectangle shows up. It is uh, called a monolith. Mm-hmm. Um, is it is it referred to that? As, I don't think it's ever referred to a monolith uh, yeah. as a monolith in the film. I, f- I think it's never referred to in any way, actually. I think yeah. we just see it and kind of experience it in the same way that the uh, the characters, even if the characters are apes, are experiencing it. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think the. Yeah, okay. So people respond to it, but they don't often say, "What's that monolith-looking thing?" Like nobody said, "Man, I wish that was a line in the film." Two thousand one, as written by Norm Macdonald, <laughs> as if the monkeys, or excuse me, the apes, were uh, were just sitting around and all of a sudden noticed it. Like, how long has that been there? Oh. This is embarrassing. You'd, you'd think I'd noticed that. Um, <laughs> and again, we're we're laughing at that idea, but I think the fact that it's so far in the other direction is one of the things that makes those scenes uh, fascinating and moving in kind of a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love the way that the monolith scene is so alluring and yet kind of frightening at the same time. Yeah. Because it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would it be there? Yeah. Where did it come from? And there's never a, really an answer. We we don't really know where it came from. We don't know how it got there. We don't know exactly what it does. Yeah, and we don't. Yeah, we don't know why. What any of those questions you're supposed to ask? Yeah, who, what, when? Yeah, yeah. And there's there's something ominous about it, but at the same time, it's like I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's alluring about it. I don't know if it's it's just the physical appearance that it's kind of mm-hmm. it's sleek and and like clean in this in this strange way especially in the context we see it like in this world with the apes like something so clean stands out um so i don't know that that's one of the things that i love about this movie is the appearance of the monolith is so magnetic and it also the it sounds weird to talk about the amazing art design of a large black rectangle but (laughs) Little things like the fact that it doesn't reflect mm. anything. It's just it just looks like somebody cut a black rectangle out of the film. Yeah, and just ran it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, it's not shiny, it's shimmery. There's no way to really tell what it is made out of. Um, it's just there. Yeah. And Kubrick knows to... Here's a quick side note. Do you say Kubrick or Kubrick? I said Kubrick for a long time, and then I realized I was the only one, so I started saying Kubrick. So I should I change my, that right now? I guess so, yeah. You know what? I'm going to say it the other way for the rest. Of, I started right. already. It's like uh, Yelchin and Yelkin. <laughs> exactly. Which everyone will definitely remember from last episode. I guess, yeah. We recorded that a few days ago, but <laughs> it'll actually be like two and a half weeks in between uh, this and the last episode. Sorry, everybody. Um, no, that's all right. Um Anyway, Kubrick, I was going to say he knows how to, to, uh, it shows a master filmmaker in that he knows how to shoot this thing, this Mm. monolith. He always shows it in a context. Like if you just see it by itself, it's boring. It doesn't look like anything, but the angles that he uses to look at it and the context in the frame where we see the monolith, it always, it always gives it that frightening, but fascinating feel that it's that it's meant to meant to have and also because of the role that the monolith plays which is as i mentioned we see the apes running around and not really doing anything and then the monolith shows up and the mere presence of it seems to spur on the apes to evolve Mm -hmm. they start using tools which is the big difference between man and ape they start using in which case, uh, an animal just uses uh, the bone of a, of a dead animal. Uh, the, the ape uses the bone of a dead animal to uh, kill uh, a fellow ape. And, um, and so they don't touch. I don't think they touch the monolith. I, th- I feel like I remember there being part where one gets close to it and right. then never actually touches it. Yeah. It's, just, it's almost like it's just emanating something. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that it is there means that progress will be made. Yeah. And and then again, and it shows up again later on and in as uh, people are mining uh in again, is it the moon? I think it's the moon. I think it is I'm the pretty moon. Pretty sure it is. And so they see the monolith and then you see I don't know how how much longer it is after that, but you see like huge not huge, but, you know, technological progress has been made now. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, one could say, in artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And there's a point. There's a lot going on in 2001. One could yeah. say that the point is that the next form of human evolution is that we create machines. And machines are slightly more perfect than we are, maybe. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a lot going on with the movie. Yeah. I like it a lot. But um, I like it a lot, but I don't. I don't respond that much to it intellectually i like it yeah not emotionally but um and so 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 it's it's just worth noting that every time the monolith shows up mankind progresses yeah and that's another that's another beautiful thing about the monolith being what it is and kubrick being uh, just brilliant is that large black rectangle you can put anything on it. You can say this rep, this is just a physical representation of evolution and progress. Hmm. Or you could say this is the physical embodiment of God Hmm. and God moving things along. And that's how we're going to interpret it. Or at least that's (laughs) how I'm going to interpret it uh, for the purposes of our conversation. Now, 
um, because in both cases, uh, in in the case of Tree of Life and 2001, uh, you have beings just going along, and then this thing involves itself, and you don't know why. You only know that we are better for it having involved itself, um, and uh, and that was re- that's really like the only the only thematic uh, thing that I uh, similarity that I wanted to bring up yeah. because I wanted to fit something into the format of the show. <laughs> well, I, I think it is true that both films show uh, they show the world that we know. Mm-hmm. And then they show something outside of it that has an effect on it. Yeah. And uh, I think many people would argue that uh, that 2001 is is not meant to be <laughs> is is not trying to say anything about God specifically. Right. Um, but it's it it certainly does resonate with us by showing us a world in which something outside of our control uh, exists something outside of our of our realm of understanding exists and has an effect on us and whether whether that's just a sci-fi idea or an exploration of god it's something that resonates with people and i think that's because uh, i think that's because it's true and in the world, yeah, and, and in the world of sci-fi, by the way, it's not at all unusual for it to delve into the realm of not merely the philosophical, but the spiritual. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, and so this this brings us back to to Tree of Life and this idea of this. I'll go back to the word force. This force that is just huge and doesn't need to bother with us at all. And that is fr- a little frightening to us at times mm. um, because of the sheer enormity of it. Um, but it still involves itself and in doing so shows that it cares about us. And so now I will say God because co- God is a more personal term, mm-hmm. I think, than the force. <laughs> Blast. George Lucas. Anyway, um, but yeah, and so like, so God is this, there's, okay, well, I thought I could make it through a whole episode without quoting C.S. Lewis, but I'm actually <laughs> going to be quoting a line from Chronicles of Narnia, which I've never read, uh, which is, uh, somebody is talking about uh, Aslan, who is uh, this, who's the lion from Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. I know which one you're going with. It's a good one, though. It, it works well, it and does. it's really the only one that anyone knows that hasn't read the books. <laughs> Um, in which uh, a character hears about this lion, and you know lions are pretty scary. You know they can take your head right off, Josh. Rip you up. <laughs> and so, <laughs> thanks, I appreciate the support. No problem. And so, um, so one of the kids says, "Aslan is that a lion? Is he dangerous? And is he safe? Is he safe? That's right. I'm sorry. Um, you know what? I might be thinking of." Uh, of the movies, uh, which I don't like, oh. but, um, <laughs> is he safe? And then, uh, I believe it's Mr. Beaver or whatever. Ah, oh, Beaver connection to last week. Oh, last episode. Oh, I wish we could end now. If you haven't listened to last time's episode now, you have to, you have to, I don't see having any other choice. No. Um, so Mr. Uh, Mr. Beaver says, well, no, he's not safe, but he is good. 
And I think therein lay one of the f- amazing things I th- I think about Christianity. And the and there's a lot of value to Tree of Life, but from a Christian standpoint, there's so so much value in it being the movie that Malick made it to be. Hmm. We understand we we so understand modern Christians so understand and so emphasize the goodness of God, and that is that is an important part of God. That is that is who he is and that's who he is completely but we downplay how if you'll excuse me unsafe he is and how scary he would seem if he did not make the choice to be good mm-hmm. which he does and that he, that a being that big is concerned with us at all much less would sacrifice himself through uh, through Jesus to save us. Yeah. And to me, if you are a Christian listening to this and you saw the tree of life and you thought, I don't get it, I don't like it, and why doesn't it talk about Jesus? In talking about how big God is and getting you to really understand his majesty, as Josh said, doesn't that make you value Jesus so much more? Absolutely. I don't know. And we don't mean either to suggest at all that Jesus isn't as important right. as the rest of this. Like, right. Uh, a lot of Christians might, encountering this argument, say, well, Jesus is the is the center of the entire Bible. And, and we agree. That's yes. true. But this film is really just an exploration of of God's nature and God's personal connection to us Mm -hmm. it's not about everything that he's done for us but we again have the resource in the bible that tells us about everything that he has done for us and Mm -hmm. how important jesus is and um like tyler was saying in knowing who god is we can we can appreciate uh jesus's sacrifice that much more we 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 have become a culture christian christian culture has moved it, it sort of tends to, if you look at history, go back and forth, like where mm-hmm. we focus a lot on the uh, uh, the power of God, and then we kind of we transition over to the love of God, and we <laughs> those times in between, are, I think, are the times when we we maybe grow the most as Christians. But yeah. it, it sort of tends to go one way and then back the other way, and I think we are more towards uh, just grace. Yeah. Um, you might say wavering between nature and grace if you wanted. Um, but, uh, we, we, we as Christians shouldn't make the mistake to focus too much on grace and forget about, um, the, uh, the other part of God. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's, it's, we're meant to see it all together. Yeah. I mean, if you focus so much on the power then you get a God that is legitimately frightening and only frightening. Mm-hmm. If you focus too much on the grace, and one could say, you can't focus enough on the grace. It's like, uh, you, yes, that is that is what saves us, is the grace. But it is ultimate grace. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate is a function of his power. And you have to believe that even to think that the grace means anything. Like right. to, to have grace and salvation from... Uh, you know, a, a little God who lives up in the clouds and, and every now and then grants your prayers. Yeah. 
you know, a little old man with a beard. That, that God sounds adorable. <laughs> he might be, mm-hmm. but uh, but that God's salvation doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, um, like if 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 my dumb old friend Josh here, that's me. If he like sacrificed himself for me in some capacity, that covers me. He has sacrificed himself for me. That sacrifice only covers me yeah. in whatever that situation might be. Because Josh has only so much power. As, God, mu- as much as I may look like Jesus right now. Yeah, it's off-putting. But, uh, but Jesus, because he has so much power, because God has so much power, that's why his sacrifice covers all of us. Mm. And so it's imp- so that's... So if you're a Christian and you watched the movie and you didn't like you didn't think it talked enough about Jesus or whatever give it another watch thinking about this thinking about the enormity of God and who it is you're praying to and how exciting it is that you're praying to and that you're that you're able to pray to him and that he does care about you. Yeah. And that's uh, and another great thing about this movie is is it shows uh, I think it shows honest responses to that God, like honest, mm-hmm. honest reactions in that. I think you, you were starting to say earlier about how it shows people who are frustrated and angry with God. And mm-hmm. I think it's beautiful to see that. Um, that's not something that we're not supposed to do, or that's not something that, uh, should be seen as taboo. It, throughout the Psalms, David is constantly crying out to God and saying, why have you done this to me? Like he, he comes out, uh, he talks straight with God, let's mm-hmm. say. He he doesn't pull any punches. Um, David is making it obvious that he has been through something terrible and he does not know where God is. He does mm-hmm. not see God and he doesn't know why God would let this happen to him. And that's sort of what we're seeing some of these characters uh, think, whether it be the mother who's lost a son or, the, uh, or, or Jack just experiencing the the problems that come with, uh, with life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, there's, there's a, one of my favorite sequences uh, that I, I have so many sequences that I love from the movie, but, um, one of the things that I like a lot is part where we see Jack sort of decide that he's going to be bad for a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it's not clear whether it's the influence of, of other kids who are kind of troublemakers or whether it's just this, sudden realization that's part of growing up that you are your own person and you can get away with not following rules if you if you don't want to and so he he starts to fall into some of these things and while it seems like maybe it should be a new freedom it's it's terrible and he starts to hate himself Mm -hmm. in that and um he he says, which is almost a, almost a direct uh, uh, almost a direct quote quoting from Paul. He says, "I do the things that I hate, and uh, the things that I know I should do, I don't do." Yeah, and like why why is it why is it that I'm like that? And so that's another see that's another part where we see a character crying out to God saying, why am I like this? Why am I doing this? And it's something that resonates with us because I think that's something we've all experienced where we, we know what we should do. Um, if you're a Christian, you know what you should do because we know that's dictated by God. Those are morals dictated by God. But I think even people who don't believe in God, 
um, feel times in their life when they, they know they are not supposed to do something and yet they still do it. Mm-hmm. And we all uh, struggle with that. And so that that's a little bit of a side note, but that's just another great thing. There's cause there are so many layers to this film. Um, that's another great uh, moment where the movie is able to show us or is to explore, is able to explore a feeling that we all have towards God and in a way show us God's response. And it is, and it is uh, an examination of grace as well. I mean, when you watch the story of this family, you do think that, okay, Brad Pitt's character is a little too harsh and his son is, uh, when he grows up, he's out of there. But that's too simple. Yeah. And what we see is we see first off, Mr. O'Brien played by Brad Pitt. He does have moments when he loves his, I mean, he loves his sons the whole time, of course, but when he, he knows he's been too harsh on them and he apologizes for it. Like, and it's a sincere apology. It's a very heart. It's a very touching moment. Yeah. But then we also see once Jack see, I mean, he prays, he wonders why his dad has not been killed. Like he wants his dad to be dead. Yeah. Um, and sure. And you know, certainly his dad does some pretty, pretty rough things. Um, but then Jack does bad on his own mm-hmm. and then he, and then he gets involved and he, he discovers, uh, the wonderful world of sexual shame. And, uh, so between that and the, the damage that he's caused other people for reasons that he doesn't know, um, he realizes, hmm, yeah, maybe I'm maybe I'm being a little harsh on my dad there. Yeah. Uh, and he is willing to extend his father grace, mm-hmm. and his father is able to. I think it's a function of gr- of of grace that he's able to see in himself. I could be I could just be stubborn and be like, whatever, I'm the father. But he doesn't. He legitimately apologizes to his son for what he's done, and like, and that's it's. It is a film that just there's oh, there's so much going on, and one of it is one of the things I don't see how anybody can say that this is a distant film because I feel like it is a film that so desperately loves and understands its characters. Absolutely, and it's it's so it's it, that's kind of a rare thing to see mm-hmm. because it, which is to say both of those you will often find a film that understands its characters so much so that it has a little bit of disgust. Mm-hmm. And you will find some films that love their characters so much so that they make them almost perfect. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing is, for example, there's a movie called uh, a movie. We all know about the movie, the girl with the dragon tattoo. Mm. Um, but there's a character in it who is, you know, she named. Uh, now, I don't remember. That's all right. Oh, well, help you have it's Rooney Mara's character. I don't recall her name, but it's a uh, very uh, Lisbeth. There you go. Oh, yeah. Uh, and she's got like a lot of quirks and some flaws, but she, when you look at over the course of the film, she never does anything wrong. Hmm. Like it is a film that, that says, well, she's the, she's the main character, so we can't have her do anything incorrect. She might be flawed at times, but when you really look at the core, she's a pure spirit, man. And it's like, that's a film that loves its characters but doesn't maybe see them honestly. Yeah. Like, and, and that's why tree of life is so invigorating and, and why some people I could see being, uh, frustrated by that. I won't say ambiguity, 
but people could see it as ambiguity. It's like, no, make up your mind. It's like, its mind is that these are characters. These are people. Mm-hmm. And much the way I would say God sees us knowing what we are, but knowing that we are loved mm-hmm. and being loved is not the same as being good, by the way. Yeah. That we are, it's a film that loves its characters in the way that God loves us, which is sees us for what we are, but loves us no matter what. Yeah, and is honest about how complex they are. Yeah, and it's just it, it's just such an amazing film. And and if you've listened this far and haven't and you haven't seen it, I have to assume you don't exist because <laughs> I, no one is listening to this and hasn't seen the film. But um, but yeah, but I will speak specifically to the people, and I've done this already, but. If you saw the film and you didn't particularly care for it, watch it again and just try to see it from a different point of view. Now that you've seen it, you know what to expect, Mm -hmm. and it's not going to throw you in that way, but just give it another look and and open your mind and open your heart to it. And if you are a Christian, maybe pray before it and ask ask God to... You know, reveal himself in it again. It is just a movie, right? Yeah. So I don't mean to say like act as though it's the Bible. It's not but, part of the canon now, right? Right. So um, as we all know, that's uh, the Bible and fireproof. Yeah. Only the Pope makes things in the canon. <laughs> oh come on now. Let's not uh, let's not uh, slag the uh, Catholics. That's um, the Catholics of the I don't know, thirteen hundreds. There you go. Pope doesn't do that anymore. <coughs> no. Well, I don't want to have this would. direction. We should just start adding stuff in. Like, Wouldn't it be girl with the dragon just... tattoo. That's in the Bible now. <laughs> that Elizabeth, she's a she's a she's a flower. <laughs> she's everything that she does is right. That's kind of true in the film. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I hope uh, everybody enjoyed uh, this discussion. Um, I know I did because I, I thinking about the film again. I. I it is it is really a, a great film, and if for some reason you haven't seen it yet, we do highly recommend it. Yeah. And also, I, I I don't want people to feel too much like we skimped on two thousand one. I know we didn't talk about it too much, right. but um, uh, we I th- I think the goal was really to just show how it's another film that explores this one idea, and mm-hmm. so much ground has been covered with two thousand one already. Yeah, if you'd like to know more of our specific thoughts on it, hey, we'd be happy to respond to you through email or Twitter or whatever other social media is available. Absolutely. Although, there's something funny about, like, let's have an in-depth discussion about 2001 A Space Odyssey over Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) That seems uh, counterintuitive somehow. But, um, yeah, and if you did want to email us, you can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com or Josh at morethanonelesson.com. You can get Josh there, not me. Hmm. Um, you can go to the website morethanonelesson.com, obviously. You can follow me on Twitter. That's t- uh, twitter.com slash morelessons. You can follow Josh at twitter.com slash thejoshlong, T-H-E. Um, you can leave us a nice review on uh, iTunes if you like. Um, you can uh, recommend us to your friends. You can uh, join the Facebook group. Uh, where I regularly update and put uh, sermon recommendations, episodes, and blogs. There aren't very many blogs because uh, I don't have a whole lot of bloggers mm-hmm. and I don't do a lot of writing myself. But uh, And then there is, I, I will mention for anyone who maybe hasn't read it yet, I do have a review that I wrote about Tree of Life shortly after seeing it. So that's just another, if you'd like to hear further thoughts on it, if this wasn't enough, um, or if... Uh, sometimes my writing is a little more concise than my talking. So if you uh, like to, if you're completely ad- confused about what I think about the movie at this point and would like to hear a more concise version of it, hey, there's a that review's out there. Absolutely, and I will link to that on the uh, on the 
uh, blog entry for for this page, but uh, for for this uh, episode. But uh, yeah, uh, the next movie we're going to be talking about, and I can't really speak to when that will be. Probably in a week and a half, two weeks from now, um, will be Steve McQueen's Shame, starring Michael Fassbender. Uh, at the time that we record this, I don't know what the Oscar nominations will be, but by the time we release that episode, uh, it will probably, though not guaranteed, it will probably be up for Best Actor. Um, and so that, and I will say that movie is rated NC-17 for sexuality. So if you want to see it in preparation for the episode, uh, just know that going in. If that's if that's an issue that you have, uh, if that's a, if that's a problem for you. Um, or a temptation for you, then uh, feel free to not see it. It's perfectly understandable. But uh, yeah, in the meantime, thank you for listening. And Josh, thanks for uh, participating. Well, you're welcome, Tyler. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.